If I was telling anybody, you got to start with yourself. You got to start with being real and being honest. And you have to be happy and you've got to have a smile on your face because nobody wants to deal with a dick. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, you've got to humble yourself because a lot of times for you to build relationships, you have to get through a gatekeeper. And sometimes the gatekeeper is the toughest person to get through to, to get to the person that you want to really impress or you want to do business with. I watched my father go into offices for five or six years and would walk in sometimes with a meeting uh, scheduled, sometimes without a meeting scheduled and would say, I'm here to talk to the office manager. I want to do your office supplies. And they'd be like, Raleigh, we already told you we're using staples and we don't want to use you. Like we're totally (laughs) happy. And he's like, well, just, you know, if anything comes up, just let me know. I'll come back next week. (laughs) And they were like, no, 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 don't come back next week. (laughs) But he never took no for an answer. And that was something that he really taught me early on is you can't take no. There is no such thing as no when you're selling yourself or selling a product or trying if you have the desire to talk to somebody or to meet somebody, then you have to become very creative in the way that you get to that person. And a lot of times it's just persistence and not giving in to the word no. Welcome to The Climb, Crossroads in Defining Moments. Today we're joined by Raleigh Green, founder and managing member of Emerald Consulting. Happy to have you here today, Raleigh. Happy to be here. Thank you. So before we dive in, because I've just got a lot of questions, and and Bob does too, with what we do for a living and our backgrounds, what what you do we find incredibly interesting. Just tell us a little bit about you. Where where are you from? Where you been? Where you're headed? Yeah. So born and raised here in Fort Worth, Texas. Great. I'm outnumbered again. (laughs) (laughs) By design. Yeah. Born and raised here in Fort Worth. Went to Arlington Heights High School. Went to the University of Texas on a track scholarship and came back to Fort Worth after four years of fun down at Texas and actually finished my degree at TCU. And then, you know, got married early on and thought I was mature and had the, you know, world by the balls and was ready to <laughs> ready to go conquer everything that was in front of me and realized after, you know, about 10 years, you, you've realized quickly that you don't have anything figured out and you're not mature and, and you better start figuring it out pretty quick. So yeah, lived here in Fort Worth with, with my wife at the time and ended up unfortunately getting a divorce have a beautiful boy from that marriage. He'll be nine in February. But moved after my divorce to Dallas and lived in Dallas for seven years. During that process, I put myself through business school at SMU and decided that it was time for a major change in every aspect of my life. And I met my current wife, my beautiful bride, 
as of July this year in Dallas and moved, and moved her back to back to Fort Worth, which was a shocker for her. But she's a trooper and she's getting to love the community and love our neighborhood and and uh, we're both entrepreneurs by trade. She just launched a business herself in March of 2020. She actually launched it two weeks before COVID hit and was in the process of her starting her fundraising campaign, which was a very rough ride. And I had started Emerald Consulting a few years back, but really started picking things back up full-time with it, I would say in late, uh, early 2018. So that's kind of where we are today. On the theme of your wife, because Bob, Chris Powers, who we've had on the podcast and introduced yeah. us to Johnny, she was actually on his podcast, That's right? correct. So you've sat in this room before. I mean, tell us a little bit more about the business and what she's got going on, because it's, it's really neat. Yeah, so her name is Megan Megan Green, and she started a company called The Dowry. It's an online platform that connects local artisans from all over the country to grooms and brides that she created a wedding registry for. So she was also in a previous marriage, and during her experience of registering for things, she found that things were very limited on what she could register for. And everybody went to the same big box retailers. And so mm-hmm. everyone for that year's home looked the same. They all had the same pottery barn <laughs> or the same, you know, bed, bath and beyond, whatever it was. And she found a hole in the market and said, man, you know, there's a ton of local artisans all over the country in the United States that only sell through their, you know, local retailers. And that's really their only channel. And these people aren't good business people. These are, they're artists by nature. And so they don't have the skill sets to push their products out onto some platform, a different platform than their local retailer. So she started, you know, doing a lot of research and we worked on her business plan for months on end. And we decided that, you know, now is the the best time to dive in and try to tackle this 10,000 pound gorilla that's out there. And the business has been great. She, you can find her on www.thedowry.com. And it is not only a wedding registry gift site, but it's also just a standard platform that you can buy anything on. So yeah, it's uh, it's been a rough year for fundraising for her business and for my business, and but I feel like we finished the year pretty strong. And she she was actually able to raise a little over a quarter of a million dollars from friends and family, and will continue to raise capital this coming year. Mm-hmm. Well, I will definitely be sending this over to my fiance here. We're well, hopefully, getting married here in May. So there you go. She, Congratulations. Uh, yeah, we were supposed to get married last May and, you know, had the push. And, you know, if she sticks around for another five months of this two and a half year engagement, we're going to get this deal done. I'll send it to her for sure because she, you know, it's funny you say like that because I've talked to her and she's like, yeah, well, 
there's only like Crate and Barrel and West Elm and all the other ones. And, you know, whatever's kind of in style then is what everybody else has. So that's exciting. I'll definitely uh, send that over to her. That's great. Yeah, it's it's a really cool concept. And, you know, most guys aren't into, we usually don't care what our wives pick and choose for what pottery we're using or what ceramics are going in our house. And being, you know, a part of this company and an investor in Megan and the dowry, I've gotten to really dive into the details of each artist and how she is very particular on what artists she allows to be on the site because, you know, it, she doesn't want it to be a tchotchke wa- website by any yeah. means. Yeah. Know, she really wants it to be uh, very clean and have really high-end products that are going to, you know, look look good in people's homes. Maybe you can start a blog on the side for guys like me to read as you're going through this. Cause like <laughs> I tried the, Hey, I don't care what plate we get. Like if you like them, well, apparently that's not a good bad answer. answer. I'm like, can we eat always a bad answer? Yeah, that's good by me. <laughs> right. Does it yeah. go in the dishwasher? <laughs> yeah. Just make you sure like the just red make ones sure it or the gray ones. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, my big exactly. thing. Yeah. As long as I can throw it in the dishwasher, I'm happy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so I got married over 17 years ago. And I remember the same thing. Like, you're going to come with me to XYZ store and we're going to register. And I'm like, sweetie, I love you, but I like, just go do it. I don't, I don't care what she's like, you're coming. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. So I think the, you know, the sales lady can see my enthusiasm and she gives me like this gun that you go, click right. on everything. And Which I mean, is supposed to be exciting for the guy. Well, I went berserk <laughs> with this thing. I mean, I think I registered for every single thing they had in the yeah. store. <laughs> and miraculously, the next time she went to a store, I wasn't invited. Yeah. So there you go. I'll contribute to your blog. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, hey, Michael, yeah. I, wanted to, I wanted to ask him one more question, just like going back a little bit, because Raleigh, you'd mentioned, and first of all, Michael, we got to get his wife on podcast. For sure. So that'll be a good takeaway. You mentioned, Raleigh, you mentioned going to bar B school at SMU. And then you said, hey, like, it was time for me to make a major change. Like, some, you know, shift there. What, is there something specifically that, like, you know, in the kind of light of this podcast, defining moments, the climb, like, is there something there that that spoke to you and said, I just need to make this change? Like, what got you to that point? Great question. So if you back up to... Right out of college, I went to work for a hedge fund in Dallas. Originally started off as the runner, grabbing mail and getting coffee and getting laundry for different portfolio managers. And the CEO was a good family friend of ours. And I kind of earned my stripes and put in the time and told him that early on that I wanted to be on the trading desk. And after about six months of running errands, I uh, got promoted to junior trader and was on the energy portfolio team. And it was it was a lot of fun. It was a, a fun experience. It was fast paced. I got a nice salary. Our bonuses were amazing. And business was booming at that time. And in 2008, I got laid off with a bunch of other traders at our firm, along with the rest of the financial community, it seemed like at the time. (laughs) 
And luckily, my father owned his own business here in Fort Worth, Texas called Greenwood Office Outfitters, which was a local office supply company. Kind of think about it like Dunder Mifflin. Uh, <laughs> it, it is the Dunder Mifflin of, or was the Dunder Mifflin of Fort Worth. But, you know, had a great experience there, came in as a sales associate for my father, really got to learn the business, the family business inside and out from him. And, you know, started climbing that family business ladder and earning the respect of the employees that have been there 20 to 25 years, grew my book of business, eventually became vice president of sales, and was hoping that one day the reins would be turned over to me to run the company and grow the company as I, as I saw fit. However, my dad had a a business partner that was a 50% owner in the in the business. And my father actually went through a divorce himself. And my mom owned 25% of the business. And my dad owned 25% of the business. And as we all know, divorces are extremely expensive. And so the dreams of taking over some of the shares of that company started dwindling away. And it wasn't for, I would say a couple of different mentors that I had that I had kept pushing the idea of going to business school and getting back into finance somehow. So, you know, a couple of years after my dad's divorce, I actually went through a divorce, as I had said, you know, previously and picked up and moved all my stuff to Dallas and kind of wanted a fresh start, looked at a bunch of different business schools in Texas and went back to the hedge fund manager that was a, a major mentor of mine and asked him, you know, should I go here or should I go here? And he said, do you plan on doing business in Texas? And I said, yes. And he said, do you plan on doing business in, in Dallas, Fort Worth? And I said, yes. And he goes, well, then there's no other option. You have to go to SMU. So, <laughs> you know, the, the alumni network is huge. And it's very accommodating to everyone that graduates from the Cox School of Business. So, yeah, I, I went that route. And while I was in business school, I was studying corporate finance and my focus was on energy. And I've, I thought that I was going to come out of the MBA program starting, you know, raising capital from a private equity group and, you know, starting my own EMP company with a couple of other business school mates. But, uh, you know, God had a different, obviously a different plan. And during that process, he opened a couple doors that I never thought would open. Didn't even think about these doors opening. And one of them was actually to with an old family friend of mine in Fort Worth who's in his mid-50s who was buying a distressed molecular testing healthcare company in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And we started talking, you know, on a weekly basis about the opportunity at hand. And he said that he was going to pursue the acquisition. And I told him that I wanted to be a part of the uh, the process and a part of the company. And so 
during my second year of business school, I started working in the healthcare industry and started a distribution company that was distributing molecular tests for his company and got to a point where him and his partners decided, hey, you know, you and your team are really, you know, doing a lot of a lot of business. You're creating a, a lot of new revenue streams. And we'd like to actually have you on board. So I came on as director of hospital development and started pouring my life into this healthcare company that we grew from six employees all the way to around 80 at the time. It's not that today, but, you know, it was a fun ride. And during that process, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about perseverance. I learned a lot about integrity and doing business with people that have integrity and the importance of that and a lot of life lessons. You know, I can tell you the the last probably 15 years of my life has, has been a climb. It's been, you know, you I always say you take three steps forward and two steps back. And as long as you get that extra step in, you're moving in the right direction. So yeah, it's a uh, business school was unbelievable for me. I never really enjoyed school as a child. And it was one of those things that every year you would go to go into a class and it was the same classes, history, English, math, and you were learning new things, but it wasn't something that I wanted to learn. And early on in my life, I had a an entrepreneurial spirit starting at 10 years old with two of my buddies, Collins and Walton Ward, in our local neighborhood. We, you know, like any children in a neighborhood, during the summertime, you get bored and we would get into mischief and we would come up with different things to create. And one of the things that we created, like every other child in America does, is a lemonade stand. But yeah. I came up with the idea of where we should put the lemonade stand. And you always hear location, location, location. Well, we started putting our lemonade stand in between the first island and the second island of Rivercrest Country Club golf course. (laughs) And so the golfers had to drive by our lemonade stand and we were at a two-way stop there. So we had cars stopping and we had uh, golf carts stopping and we knew that most of the men carried large bills and we didn't come prepared with change. There you go. So most of the time they go, oh, just keep the 20 or, oh, you know, old man Vanderbilt <laughs> would say, oh, keep the 100, you know. <laughs> um, so we would walk out of there with, you know, you know, 100, 150 bucks a day and we moved it around. Were they bring in their own vodka then too? <laughs> or, yeah, you know, the we, golfers? <laughs> we would, we, uh, it was great. My My mom would, pile up all of our tables and our chairs and everything into her Ford Explorer and drive us there every day and drop <laughs> us off. And and then we got to a point where we were actually on one of the uh, members' pieces of property and we would hide our chairs and our table behind <laughs> their bushes. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. Um, you know, Bob, a, a couple of years ago when you know, I really started doing a lot of research and thinking through 
how we bring what we do for the private equity world to the family office world. I began, you know, the the rabbit holes of of networking and figuring that out and called up an old friend that I hadn't talked to in a while. Another guy would probably need to get on the podcast, Ryan Center, and started Great explaining guy. this. And, and he's in the the consultative world with Riveron. And so he understands our model and, and the way we go about thinking and asking questions and ultimately creating value. And he said, well, do you know Raleigh Green? And I was like, man, that name sure sounds familiar. And I went on LinkedIn. I'm looking at it right now. I think it's an all-time record. We have 392 mutual connections, but didn't know each other. I'm like, how is that possible? And so we initially got on the phone and started having lunch and, and so many commonalities. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to kind of dive into what you've created. But, you know, in looking on here, it's, it's Raleigh Green the fifth. I mean, I, I want to talk more about that family dynamic and the ultimate sale of Greenwood out for like finish that part of the story because it's it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. So the Greenwood story ended in 2017. I had already started to part ways and had already started my healthcare distribution company and was kind of doing both jobs at the same time and had told my dad, you know, look, I got to go pursue this. This is, you know, you're in the process of selling your business and with the new owners coming in place, you know, they're not going to want me around. And, you know, without having ownership, it just wasn't something that I really had passion for anymore. And so my dad, who taught me everything. He taught me everything about life, about being a good man, about respect, you know, always trying to do the right thing because we only have one name and your name is everything. And if you get, you know, different nicks on your name, they stay with you forever. And any of you guys from Fort Worth understand that Fort Worth is a very, very small community and they love to talk about things that happened 25 years ago or whatever. And I, you know, grew up in this community and was ran with a fun, wild group of guys and we didn't do anything bad. We just had a lot of fun and we got into mischief and our parents were all working their tails off. And I would say wasn't always around to give the discipline that we needed. <laughs> and so Fort Worth, you know, is, is the greatest small town in, in America. But even my wife knows today, like you can't sneeze in Fort Worth without somebody exactly knowing it. So my dad early on in my life said, look, you know, you guys can keep going down this road or you can change your, your ways right now. And he knew that running was an outlet for me. He was a big runner, ran at TCU in the 70s and was a big time marathoner all through the 80s. And he really channel, helped channel my energy to focus on running. And he poured his life into helping me be the best I could and I was one of the top runners in the state. I was one of the top runners in the nation in cross country and in high school. 
I got a, a scholarship to the University of Texas and all of those things I owe to my dad because that was the hard work that he put in on top of the hard work of building a business and doing the daily grind with two other siblings that I had and a wife and and everything else. So to rewind just a little bit back to, you know, being at Greenwood and him teaching me about sales, it always started with cultivating relationships. And if you want to treat each and every client like you treated the girl that you wanted to date and it was a slow process and you don't want to just rush into something and tell them, you know, everything that they need, that they want to hear up front. You want to slowly build a, a rapport with them. And if anybody listening to this podcast knows my dad, they know that he did a great job hitting the streets every day of Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, building his business through building relationships. Greenwood never used any marketing tool, which when I came into the business, I was like, we got to, you, you know, we got to start with <laughs> billboards and we got to get a, a website. We got to get a Facebook page and we, we got to get all the stuff. And they were all like, whoa, what is this kid doing? And pump the brake. You know, it was a fun ride working with my dad and, and we were a great team. My dad built an amazing company with Bob Wood. Unfortunately, today that company is not what it used to be. And luckily for Bob and my dad, they got out at the right time. But, you know, I learned a lot of life lessons there. And after the sale of his business, I've tried to take those lessons with me into the healthcare world and then into, you know, into my daily practice with everyone that I meet. You know, relationships are, are my favorite thing. I would say, for me, creating new relationships is my favorite thing to do on this earth. I love adventure and I love meeting new people and I love connecting people. And that's really what has given me the success that I've had today with Emerald and creating what I've created through the relationships that I've built. And, uh, you know, you brought up family offices. Family offices are some of the toughest groups to get into. And they don't advertise and they don't have Google pages. And if they do, it's very rare. And it's still going to be very tough for you to get a meeting with the right groups and the right people that are making the decisions at those family offices. And luckily, I was able to, through the office supply world and also through the hedge fund that I worked for, was able to establish good relationships with people that, like all of us, have climbed the ladder and have gone on to do different things. And some of them have created so much wealth for themselves that they've had, they've been blessed to be able to start family offices. And, you know, I've gotten to be along for the ride mm -hmm. of that and to see people grow their businesses and also be a part of just continuing the friendship that we had when they didn't have those things. The um, uh, thank you, Mike, thank you for sharing that. Jump in. 
No, I was going to say, first of all, thank you for sharing that. I love what you talked about with your dad. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm very similar to you and we can talk about that more at a later date, but you know, the impact he had on my life, similar, like sounds like you had one of the things I was going to ask you is you talk about like cultivating these relationships and how you do that. Maybe like expand upon how you just kind of think about that world and maybe for some of like some advice for like some of our younger listeners, right? You know, everybody hears the relationships are important and, and how do you start that when you're coming into the business world or where maybe you're making a career change and before it wasn't as important and now you're like, Hey, I got to cultivate these relationships. How would you, you know, think to tell people like, here's how I kind of started and did that to get these fantastic relationships that are really, it sounds like the lifeblood of your business. That's a great question. I would go back to, if I was telling anybody, you got to start with yourself. You got to start with being real and being honest. And you have to be happy and you've got to have a smile on your face because nobody wants to deal with a dick. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, you've got to humble yourself because a lot of the times for you to build relationships, you have to get through a gatekeeper. And sometimes the gatekeeper is the toughest person to get through to, to get to the person that you want to really impress or you want to do business with. I watch my father go into offices for five or six years and would walk in sometimes with a meeting uh, scheduled, sometimes without a meeting scheduled and would say, I'm here to talk to the office manager. I want to do your office supplies. And they'd be like, Raleigh, we already told you we're using staples and we don't want to use you. Like we're totally (laughs) happy. And he's like, well, just, you know, if anything comes up, just let me know. I'll come back next week. (laughs) And they were like, no, 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 don't come back next week. (laughs) But he never took no for an answer. And that was something that he really taught me early on is you can't take no. There is no such thing as no when you're selling yourself or selling a product or trying. If you have the desire to talk to somebody or to meet somebody, then you have to become very creative in the way that you get to that person. And a lot of times it's just persistence and not giving in to the word no. So many people today, especially this next generation, it's scary because, you know, they love doing everything online. They love the Zoom. They love they love the whole COVID situation of, hey, we're going to work from our office and our sweatpants and our t-shirts. And, you know, sure, that's great. We love all that too. But we also, we miss, or I can say for me, I miss the personal one-on-one interaction, the face-to-face, having meetings in these family offices, having meetings with my mentors, you know, having meetings with individual investors, you know, the face-to-face through a screen doesn't do the justice that being in person and being able to sit in somebody's office and looking around and going, man, these guys created this. This is awesome, you know? And you, you don't have the same respect for that person. One thing that I've had to teach myself over the last, I would say, four or five years is 
to really respect the what these people have created and how hard they have worked and their teams have worked to be able to get them into a place where they are now calling the shots and they can tell you, no, I'm not interested in that deal and this is why. Or, hey, we're going to review that deal, but we'll get back to you. And you have to have respect for the time that they are going to take to review that deal. Because a lot of the times when I'm dealing with clients of mine who are raising capital and I'm out sourcing investors, the clients are on a different timeline than the investors. Right. And they want their capital commitments very quickly. And sometimes the best investors take their time and they slow play you for a reason. And they want to see who else comes to the table before they come to the table. And, and for me, I have to respect that window of time that they need. But I also, in the process, have to be careful with how I do follow-up calls, how I approach follow-up emails, et cetera. It's an art that I believe you learn through trial and error. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't, like I've learned, and as you talk, it's like you can't, you always want it to be on your timeline, right. but you got to remember at the end of the day, like it's not about you, it's about your client and we, or your prospective client. Mm -hmm. You got to make it about them or whoever that person is, you know, whether it's someone in your network, if you're focused on you, that just, you might have a couple of wins here and there, but that's not a good long-term play. Now we've got a, a, a saying in our office that it's all about timing and priorities and neither one of them are yours. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great thing. Yeah. Um, now, yeah, I appreciated the comments with your dad. I, I remember when I was graduating from college, my dad said, okay, you know, now what are you going to do? And I said, I, I don't have a clue, but if I can find something where I get to meet new people all the time and create relationships with them, I think I'll be pretty happy. And so I think we share that. I mean, I think that's probably... Even though we've gone to lunch once and met, you know, over the phone a couple of times and some Zoom calls because of COVID. Yeah, I feel like I've known you for a long time. Yeah. So I think we both share that passion. So focusing in on Emerald Consulting, because I do want to talk about that. Talk about that platform and how it works. So it started off just helping out a buddy of mine who created a hedge fund right out of business school. And he was a roommate of mine in Dallas for a couple of years and one of my best friends on the planet to this day. And he was, he's one of those, he's a genius. He went to MIT for undergrad, did investment banking right out of undergrad, went to Stanford Business School, learned his trait from one of the best quantitative hedge fund managers in the world and had that entrepreneurial spirit to go start something. And he identified very quickly that he needed help with raising capital. And he was like, you know, Raleigh, I haven't been in Texas for 14 years, a long time. And I had a bunch of relationships. And so we sat down and we started hammering out little, you know, spreadsheets of who we were going to call and, and, and Emerald really started there. And we had some success. And that was early on. That was before business school. So I was actually just working as an independent 
consultant that didn't have Emerald as the company name. And that was back in like 2012. And fast forward to where I was with the healthcare company in Fort Worth, a friend of mine called me and said, hey, a very well-known oil and gas company is looking to raise $150 million and they're looking for family office money. And I've talked to them and they said that they would, you know, happily pay a success fee. So I met with a couple of the guys from the company and within three weeks, I actually had $165 million committed from two different family offices one in Dallas and one in Fort Worth. And it was one of those aha moments for me because one of my mentors who I play tennis with all the time, I remember telling Matt Johnson that I didn't really know what I wanted to do after after I left the healthcare business. And he said, man, you should continue to raise capital. He goes, you do a great job. He was like, you know, everybody, you got to be confident in your ability to continue to go down that path. And I think you've really got something here. So I followed his advice as I usually do. And it's been great. You know, I've, I've now to date raised a little over $247 million. I've gotten to work with companies of, you know, in the real estate, commercial real estate industry. I've gotten to sit down with the CEO of Thor Equities, who is now a, a very good friend of Megan and mine, and have helped participate in a couple of his commercial real estate acquisitions, and have also had a lot of fun in the energy space, being here in Fort Worth, raising different funds for, you know, different projects that these guys are working on. And I would say to date, we really focus on healthcare, energy, and real estate. And I can say real estate now because we've closed, you know, we've had success with two different closings. And I'm now in the process of getting my real estate license, which is a total beatdown. (laughs) (laughs) And I never knew that there was this much information involved in getting your real estate license. So kudos to all you guys that have your real estate license and keep it up. (laughs) Yeah, no, I got my real estate license, I think my sophomore year in college, because summer rolled around and my parents said, well, what classes have you signed up for? And I was like, what what do you mean? I'm not going to summer school. Like you take the summers off. They're like, you don't. And they said, you're doing something. And I said, well, you know, my mom was a residential real estate person. And I said, well, you know, how hard could that be? And I I think it took me like three times to pass the test. I mean, it was tough. It was absolutely tough. It's a lot tougher than we, than what I expected. That's for sure. For sure. One of the things that was going to maybe go down, Raleigh, was you know, as you get potential opportunities in, how do you think about those deals? Because obviously, like your reputation, right, is a little bit at risk. Like you got to be able to bring good, thoughtful opportunities to your investor. You don't just want to throw a bunch of stuff at them that make and hope it sticks. How do you think through that? And how do you evaluate some of those opportunities kind of on your end before you bring it to those folks? No, that's a great question. So 
my reputation in this business is everything. You know, Emerald Consulting is not a licensed broker dealer, and we don't want to be. What we are is a registered finder, and we basically put, we've got two jobs, right? In my left hand, I have to go source deals that I think are legitimate, and I have to do a lot of analysis and background checks on who these entrepreneurs are, who the companies are, and to see if it's a good fit for the investor pool that I have good relationships with. And the in my right hand, I have to go make sure that I'm not sending a real estate deal to a family office that only invests in, you know, energy and healthcare. Right. So, you know, that process is, it's a lot of fun and it's, it's a lot of work and making sure the, the best part about our job is the investors that we bring these deals to are astute investors and they understand that I am not providing advice on any of the deals that I bring to them and that, and they don't want me to give them any advice. They're, they either have teams that are going to evaluate it or they're going to evaluate it themselves and they are confident that they have the background and historic uh, and have had historic success in analyzing each one of these deals that comes across their table. And these guys look at hundreds of deals, Yeah, sometimes a month. You know, I mean, I'm one of hundreds of different groups that that send deals to these family offices and individual investors. You know, what I try to do is really cherry pick the best possible, not always the best possible return or the best possible idea, but the best possible management team. And I, I've mm-hmm. learned that from a couple of astute investors that I really have a lot of respect for and I've sat in meetings with them and they said, look, you know, we don't invest in ideas. There's a million good ideas. What we do is we invest in the management team and we want to make sure that they have what it takes to get this company to the next level. And a lot of times, you know, they're looking at some family offices look at pre-revenue companies from a venture standpoint. Some don't. You know, some tell me, look, don't yeah. even bring those deals our way. And I would say my team and I are very particular in making sure that our database is up to date with each family office and each investor, you know, what their risk tolerance is and what avenues of investment they're looking for so that we're not, you know, bringing them the wrong stuff. If you go back to that word reputation, I mean, Bob and I take that very seriously, too. There are a lot of peers and competitors in our space calling on the same potential clients that we are. And and then once you bring them over as a client, your role is still very much involved. But we also have teams that then interact the day to day financing and management of risk. So all of a sudden you're relying on what they're saying to carry on that reputation and make sure that that's not damaged. So I think if you think back to the maturation of of everything you've talked about today on this podcast and getting to where you are today, 
I got to think that when you're sending potential deals to these family offices, like they don't need you to explain it because your reputation is this is something we need to look at. Correct. Yeah. You, I mean, hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, most of the time they know that if I'm not just sending them every deal that comes across our desk, that we are very particular in what we send them and that they are going to want to look at it. Mm-hmm. Even if it's something that is way outside of their realm, as far as what they invest in, if it is something that we don't have in our database, a lot of times they'll still look at it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, like right now, if you take solar and wind energy, those are like the two hottest things that are flying across every family office desk right now. And there's so many opportunities that a lot of times the family offices have to hit pause and they have to say, wait a minute, yeah. what do we actually know about wind? What do we know about solar? And which deal is the best deal? Because I got inundated. I had a one of my investors who I love to death. He's here in Fort Worth and has been just another amazing mentor of mine, told me a couple of weeks ago, he just said, Riley, I've, I've seen 10 solar deals and I don't know what's a good solar deal and what's not. And I've got plenty of experience investing in energy. So we're hitting the pause button and it's pencils down, but we're going to take our time to do some research and really figure this out before we pull the trigger on anything. And if you read today, it's interesting. Like if you read today in the Wall Street Journal, you know, and online, if you Google family offices and look up news, you know, family offices over the last five, six years have been like the latest, greatest thing because individuals that have created wealth for themselves have now understand that they don't need to pay all these fees to money managers. They don't need to pay the fees to private equity companies. They don't need to pay the fees to hedge funds. They don't need to pay fees at all. What they need to do is, and if they're wealthy enough, they can go hire their own teams that specialize in all of that and create it themselves. And you walk into a lot of these larger family offices. And I always say family offices should be considered a family office if you're managing over $300 million. If you're under $300 million and you have a family office and you're, that's a lot of overhead that you actually don't need. And, you know, if you're managing over 300 million, you can afford to give a piece of the pie to your CIO and to have a a well robust, you know, staff that can analyze each of these deals, can analyze your stock portfolio. And you, when you walk into some of these offices, you're just blown away by how amazing they are and what everybody's doing in these offices. I mean, you've got, you know, different portfolio managers in certain managing these individuals' capital. And, you know, a great example is Tailwind Advisors here in Fort Worth. You know, you've got a group of individuals down there that are extremely smart and they're extremely well-rounded in what they each oversee for Tailwind. You know, you've got a real estate arm, you've got an energy arm, you've got a finance 
equity arm, and so on. And when I talk to some of those different investors down there, it's amazing to see how their minds work and how they all ask different questions on a different on each individual deal. And uh, you know, we learn a lot that way about how to present certain deals to these groups. When you start taking that advisory role that we find ourselves in to maybe a heightened level, and I know you've talked about with me your passion for travel and seeing this great big world that we live in, you know, and, and looking at the news coverage last night bleeding into today in, in Georgia and what that could mean for the U.S. Senate, like what are you seeing on the forefront now with in regards to tax laws and estate planning and and where that could be headed? To be 100% honest, I haven't really dove into it too much. You know, I, I can speak from what I know and what I've been told over the last, you know, eight months during COVID. And what I saw was a lot of family offices were protecting themselves and they were getting ready for a change of the guards, whether they wanted it or not. And whether the election turned out in favor of them, of their candidate or not, you know, 2021, they've already put 2020 behind them. And, you know, 2021, they're geared up and ready to go. And, you know, I think we're going to find out a lot with these two Senate seats. And if the Republicans hold the Senate, I think we're going to see a lot of additional capital flow into the market. However, (laughs) you know, I've been saying for the last 10 years that the market is due for a correction and I've been wrong. (laughs) And I had business school buddies of mine in 2014 and 15 saying they were pulling out their 401ks, they were going straight to cash. And I hope that they're still not there. (laughs) And I remember in in 08 when the, or in 07, when the stock market, you know, was at 12,000, the hedge fund manager that I worked for said that I would never see it break 12,000 again and that it was monumental. And so... Who knows? I mean, you know, today's politics is just, it's a scary world that we live in. And, you know, I've never seen our country this divided. And I think that that's a serious problem. There's a lot of people that, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. And they're supporting different people just because it's cool. And what they're not understanding is the ripple effect that it's going to have on generations to come. And the issues that we see today, there are definite issues that need to be addressed. This whole Black Lives Matter is something that hits home with me because I'm not racist uh, by any means. I grew up running track with every race there is, and I showered with every race, and I loved everybody that I ran with. And it really breaks my heart that there are people out there that are that hatred yeah. is still you know hatred and racism is just uncalled for and and it's not something that i would ever stand with i understand why these these black communities are coming together and i stand with them however i don't 
100% support the Black Lives Matter movement. I do believe that racism needs to be ended. And we are in a generation that still flies a Confederate flag from time to time. And I think that those people that are flying those flags are just ridiculous because they yeah. don't understand history. The Confederates lost. It's over. No flag should ever be flown. And, you know, it's a sign of immaturity. And it's a sign of people that are just ignorant. And, you know, it's, it's something that I really think you know, God is pulling everyone together in this country, and he's putting a, an end to a lot of things that our government has shunned away from. And I think it's wrong that our government hasn't removed flags from different state flags, you know, removing the Confederate flag from these different state flags. They, that should have been done years ago. Yeah. And, and I understand that there's a a bunch of people saying, well, you're just erasing history and I'm, nobody's erasing history. The history was erased when the Confederates lost and the flag needs to be erased and burned. <laughs> we need to stand up as a community and stand up for each individual that's out there that needs our help. It's a wild world that we, it's, it's a sick world that we live in and we live in the greatest country in the world, and we abuse each other on a daily basis. And it's just not necessary, and it needs to end. Maybe a way to look at it is, you know, in that example, it wouldn't be erasing history. It would be creating history by correcting something that should have been corrected a long time ago. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I hear you on that. I didn't mean to go down that rabbit no, hole. No, no, not at <laughs> Sorry, all. Sorry, guys, but no. that is definitely something that has been popped up recently. And I mean, I just watched the 30 for 30 on the first NASCAR, or not first NASCAR, but the current NASCAR black driver. Right. And they found a noose in his garage at Talladega after the government said, hey, no, no more, you know, state flags we got to take out the Confederate flag of all state flags. And, and NASCAR came out and said, we're not flying the Confederate flag anymore. And you're just going, who are these people? Mm -hmm. Like, how can we, I mean, these are, these are the most ignorant people there are. And it's a, an issue of generational stupidity because, yeah. and it's our job to get into these schools and to get with these parents in these next generations coming up and to say that is not right and we've got to put an end to it and today I, i'm sorry but you know i feel like our schools have just become too weak and you know nothing's socially acceptable anymore and i think that they need to bring back the paddle because even when i was in high school like <laughs> yeah. you did something wrong <laughs> i mean you would get paddled and those are things that we've lost sight of. I mean, America's gotten weak. And um, I hate yeah. to say it, everybody wants to be glorious and glamorous on, you know, TikTok and Snapchat and Facebook and Instagram, and they don't want to deal with today's issues and they want to portray themselves as perfect. And they're really just running away from themselves and running away from the issues at hand that we all need to be addressing as 
humans. No, we're glad you brought it up. I mean, when we, thinking back, Bob, to when we were coming up with this idea, I mean, a big passion of this is getting thought-provoking people that give a shit on this podcast to tell us what they think, because the message needs to get out. I mean, doing nothing is worse than the alternative, right? Right. So, and you don't have to look back far in, in any great time in any nation or empire or culture or history to realize that this is what breaks it down. Right. So, no, we appreciate you bringing that up. I mean, you know, Bob and I have had a lot of, of talks. Living in Chicago right now is is tough. Oh, and remember having, having like Chris Lee on. We had Chris Lee on the podcast. I mean, just hear, hearing his story, you know, growing up, being African-American and some of the stuff he's gone through, you know, Harvard and Columbia educated and some of the stories he shared, you're just like, to your point, the, the amount of ignorant people out there and what he shared was just, I mean, you couldn't even imagine being in his shoes or that that would even happen, but it, it still has and did to him. And that's crazy. Yeah, it's really sad. Some of my best friends today are, you know, African-Americans that I ran track with, that I went to high school with. And I love those guys. I love, I love everybody. You know, it's, it's uh, something that my parents instilled in me at an early age was, you know, it doesn't matter what color you are, you know, everybody's a human. And it was something that, you know, I feel like has been starting to get addressed within the churches of America today. I go to a, a great church here in Fort Worth, Christ Chapel. Cody McQueen is an amazing pastor, and he's had to address the issues as well in front of the congregation and has gotten emotional talking about it because it is, it's real and it's so easily just pushed aside. And it's kind of like the, the movement that we saw a couple years ago with women's rights and the abuse that they were tired of taking within the office place. And, you know, at the time, I remember kind of pushing it aside and kind of laughing about it. And you look back on it, it's not something that needs to be laughed about. It needs to be something that's addressed because it's an issue. Sorry, that's... No, that's good stuff. So we got one more for you, Raleigh. Okay. There's the saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And then we flipped it around to say, it's not who you know, it's who knows you. <laughs> so in thinking about the medium of this podcast and our listeners and just all the passion that you shared today about growing up with such an amazing dad and, you know, maybe not getting marriage right the first time, but certainly nailing it the second time. And Absolutely. And a wonderful kid along the way. You know, what do you want people to know about you? Wow, that is a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I just want people to know that I'm a, a very loving human that just wants the best for everybody. And I'm a total adventurer. I love to travel and see the world and if i see you out there or if you see me out there running or playing tennis or traveling 
don't be a stranger. Always say hi. I'm, you know, my, my door is open to everyone. And, you know, I hope that this podcast shed some light on any dark time that you might be having or, you know, gives you confidence in your ability to pursue your dreams and to uh, go door knocking because in the saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. You got to go knock on a lot of doors to meet some people. Great answer. Well, Raleigh, we've really appreciated you coming on. Yeah. This has been a phenomenal conversation. We thank you so much. And uh, we'll be sure to reach out to Megan, get her on here as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. I appreciate sure. it, guys. And uh, Thank you, Raleigh. It's been awesome. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.